So this morning in our corporate reading, we read from Ezekiel chapter 34. And we did that because we've spent the last couple weeks following this shepherd analogy. And so Ezekiel chapter 34 prophesied this years before it would come. And the situation we've addressed in the past few weeks is that there were bad shepherds in Israel. Shepherds who did not lead the people of God well. Shepherds who had forsaken their duty to care for the sheep and had gotten fat off of the sheep. So because the shepherds could not be trusted, God said, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. I myself will lead them. I myself will feed them. I myself will care for them. And as this passage finishes, we're going to see the result of all that. Because there's this picture of sheep needing a shepherd, and so there's a human element here, but there's also a divine element. Because the shepherd would literally shepherd the sheep, but it would be God who does it. And this morning we will see how those things come together in Christ. Now I want to turn again to Ezekiel chapter 34, and I want to walk through the culmination of this chapter, and it will help set us up really well for where we're going to be this morning. So Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm going to start in verse 23. Remember last week, the purpose was, I have sheep that are of this fold, Israel, and then I have sheep that are not of this fold, who are outside of Israel, but they will be one flock with one shepherd. This is not a new concept. God has been promising this all along. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Whenever you see David spoken about in ongoing terms, uh, no, they were not looking for a resurrected David, but this is terminology for the house of David. So my servant David, the house of Judah, the rightly kingly tribe, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He goes on. I will make with them a covenant of peace. And if you know anything about Israel's history, God is a covenantal God. And so he would make agreements with them and they would fail time after time after time. Every one of the covenants was broken because of Israel's sinfulness. But this is different. Listen to the nature of this covenant. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers of season and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their, yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land. This is the second time this word secure is mentioned. It's mentioned three times in this passage. The Hebrew batak, it means safe or secure. And it's safe or secure by causing to trust. This is amazing imagery. that The sheep cannot be safe and secure unless they trust the shepherd. It's a shepherd that is so good, so able, so powerful that he causes them. He makes them lie down. He makes them trust. He makes them secure. This is a beautiful picture of how the Lord cares for them. This is also a shepherd who protects them. And they shall know that I am the Lord, picking up again in verse 27. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them, They shall no more be prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. This is definitive language. No more. This new covenant will be something that cannot be broken. 
that cannot be affected by things on the outside. They shall no more be prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, safe, cause to trust, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. This strong language, no more, never, no longer. This new covenant is something different. A new covenant that cannot be broken. A covenant that is marked by peace and security in the Lord. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they... The house of Israel are my people, declares the Lord. Paul reminds us that the house of Israel, not all Israel, is true Israel. Those who trust in Christ, like Abraham, put his faith in the Lord. They will be true spiritual Israel. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. The last three weeks we spent time in this ongoing shepherd metaphor where Jesus talks about the nature of shepherding, and all of these messages build on one another. So if you missed any of them, the, the last two are on the website. So this is going to be the, the culmination and bringing all this together. And the nature of this shepherd is one who will truly shepherd the sheep, must be human. But the human shepherds that came before, they all fell. But the Lord, our God, would be the shepherd of the sheep, and he would protect them. And as we see this pattern of no harm coming to the sheep, this sets us up really well for our passage in John. Because when Jesus says that no one can snatch us out of his hand, it's the same language of Ezekiel. No harm will come to them ever. No longer will they be tormented. So keep these things in mind as we go forward. So now you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. Starting in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. How incredible it is that you, our God, would condescend to explain yourself to us. That you would reveal yourself to us. That you would fulfill your promises throughout the ages in us. One God, yet the will of the Father, sent the accomplishing purpose of the Son and the power of the Spirit to redeem lost sheep. That is an amazing understanding that all of redemptive history finds its culmination in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our good shepherd. Lord, I pray this morning that as we hear the words from from your word, 
that you would use my words through the power of the Spirit to convict us and confirm in us who you are and what you are doing. And that there is no more secure place that we could be than in your hand. And it is a glorious place to be, to be your sheep in your pasture. And to boldly proclaim you are our God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. So the Feast of Dedication, we've talked about the feast cycle. This was not one of the major feasts. We spent a lot of time in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. The other two major feasts are Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks and Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But there were many other feasts and celebrations that marked their, their year, and not much different than our culture. I mean, our calendars are set by Veterans Day and Memorial Day and the 4th of July and Daylight Savings, whatever that is. And for us, we, we know these rhythms throughout the year, but they were much more of a celebratory culture. They had the whole party thing going on because for them, it wasn't just one day. It was a week. And this Feast of Dedication was another week celebration. So this feast is not an Old Testament feast. It actually arose within the intertestamental period, basically in the 400 years between the last prophet and the coming of Christ. And so during that time, this wicked leader Antiochus Epiphanes of Rome came in and took over the temple. And this guy was wicked. I won't go into all of the detail, but he did things like he would literally force feed unclean meat down the throats of priests. He took the inner temple chamber and turned it into a brothel. He used the altar that was used to burn incense to the Lord and made it an altar for Zeus. And so a priest of Israel named Judas Maccabeus there's these intertestamental books, these apocryphal books. Maccabees was written about those events. Those are not biblical, but they are historical and they're, they're helpful. So he led this raid. And many times we, we think about priests are always quiet and, and, and calm. The priests in the Old Testament had swords. And so it was, it was your job to protect the temple doctrinally. You were to teach. You were to give the sacrifices. But when they rebuilt the temple, they'd have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. So these priests came in and overthrew the forces that took over the the temple and they restored proper worship to Yahweh. So this feast of dedication was a rededication of the temple after it had been cleansed. And today it is still celebrated as Hanukkah. So it's amazing that that remembrance is still there. Here we find Jesus in this celebration. And they miss all of the important symbolism because it is not by accident that Jesus is here and that John mentions this. Every time John mentions a historical event, every time he mentions a feast, he's doing it on purpose. There are no unimportant details in John. This feast was represented as a reminder of deliverance from the pagan occupation and the empty religion and restoring proper worship to Yahweh. How appropriate for the last public declaration of Jesus to be done during this time. From now on, Jesus' ministry would be private. But in Jerusalem, in public, the light of the world came to stand in the temple, ushering in this new covenant that would bring in the lost sheep, but also restore proper worship to Yahweh. And through him, the Messiah, one act 
would do more than all the works of all the priests and all the blood of all the dead animals could ever do. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I wanted to get this picture. And if you have not read the book of Hebrews or spent time in the book of Hebrews, it is the new covenant fulfillment in Christ. It is all about the new covenant. And in context, if you look at Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, it is all about this new covenant. Because under the old covenant, what happened is that sin separated people from God. And the provision that God put was that blood would, ha- would remind them of their sin. And then every time they sin, a blood must be shed over and over again. The priests daily would offer sacrifices. Daily they would have to kill animals. Daily blood would be sprinkled on the altar. This was the old covenant. But in the new covenant, a better covenant. The blood of one once for all, would be shed. So no longer would bulls and goats and inappropriate, or not inappropriate, but unfulfilled sacrifices be offered. So we get this picture, and I could read all of 8 through 10, but it's just not going to happen this morning. But look at chapter 9, starting in verse 11. So this is Jesus the high priest standing in the temple, his last public declaration. And all that he symbolizes is here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, we're in Hebrews 9, 11, of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, which would eventually become the temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Remember those words, because this morning he's going to say, I give eternal life. What does eternal life mean? It means I redeemed you, as Bree mentioned earlier, bought with a price forever. His blood, the only final sacrifice that was ever needed for sin. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not only did he die to redeem us, which he did, but he he died to restore worship. To sanctify us from our evil works so that now we could do good things. Now we could worship God for who he really is in spirit and in truth. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This transition from old to new covenant. The blood of Christ, a new and better covenant. Skip over to page or to the end of the chapter, the last few verses. We use this benediction very often in our services. Chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. There's a reason that we use this benediction because it summarizes so well, not only the entire book of Hebrews, which it does, but the entire plan of redemptive history. And this is the battle cry. And also the encouragement to the church. Same book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20. 
Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see this shepherd and covenant picture united. The sheep would not live, would not survive. They would be off on their own without a shepherd. They would not live without the blood of the eternal covenant. Not one that could be broken by mere human actions. The God of peace. We saw this in Ezekiel 34. This is the covenant of peace. The God of peace. And this covenant is eternal. The purpose of this covenant, verse 21, is to equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Our lives are worship. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This summarizes God's plan of salvation worked out in us so that through Christ we can be pleasing to God. And I don't think it's by accident that at this feast of dedication, rededicating the temple of God to proper worship by the people of God, Jesus declares his unity with the Father and purpose and tells us that in me you are secure forever. All right, now that we've got that, let's walk back through. So at the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. Quick note here, in Jerusalem, winter is the rainy season. I don't care what the songs say, there were no white Christmases in Jerusalem. This is the the rainy season. Um, I think there's also a parallel here, too, that winter usually symbolizes cold and lifeless and dead. I think there was a, a winter season in Jerusalem. Because the leaders of the temple were not worshiping God. They were false, false shepherds, hired hands, strangers, thieves and robbers, as Jesus had just told us. And so this winter season, he stands in Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's portico. And so what this was, was a big open uh, porch or patio that was covered. So during the rainy seasons or during inclement weather, they could stand outside and converse with one another. Interestingly enough, this is the same spot that in Acts 3 through 5, where the the church would gather. And this is where they would would heal and and proclaim the gospel from these very steps, just a matter of days later. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, the last event we talked about was the, um, the uh, Feast of Booths, so which, which is harvest time. This Feast of Dedication was wintertime, mid to late December. So about two months had passed. They still remembered the words of Jesus. Two months later, they see him and they, they gather around him. This, this word in the Greek is encircled him. So this crowd comes around him and says, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, this phrase you can't really translate into English because it's a Hebraism. It literally means, until when do you lift up our soul? Until when do you lift up our soul? As if the, the collective soul and heart of the Hebrews was burdened. They're essentially saying that we've been in anticipation for two months and our souls are confused. Will you tell us now? Are you really the Christ? Now, this is interesting that they asked this because these are the same Jews. If they heard him before, they saw him heal the blind man. They heard him teach. We went through all of his teachings during the Feast of Booths. 
They didn't believe then. Jesus knew their heart. They weren't going to believe now. The disciples picked up on this in chapter one. They met Jesus for five minutes like this is the guy. This is the one that, that Moses and all of the prophets told us about. He knew their hearts. He knew that their understanding was purely of a human office. They wanted a political savior. They wanted instant gratification. Well, as we've seen in Ezekiel and many other places, that the promised one of God had multiple divine connotations and they were blind to it. So they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Plainly. As if everything else he had done wasn't enough. Tell us plainly. He's saying, hey, just, just, just tell us. But saying it plainly is not going to penetrate a heart of stone. They were looking for an earthly king, a political savior who would redeem them or who, who would rescue them temporally from Rome. They couldn't imagine that the prophesied restoration was spiritual and not political. Sadly, not much has changed. Because for many people, it's hard to imagine that there is spiritual restoration beyond the political. This is why in our guys' nights, when we get together and we talk about heart idols, we address the idol of politics last week. Because for so many people, they look for redemption in political transformation rather than transformation by the Lord Christ. Instead of, we talked about, instead of resting in his kingship, we look for our king on earth. And assume that because things are really good in our eyes or really bad in our eyes, then that will determine everything else. But if you understand who's ultimately on the throne, it doesn't matter. So we have to be careful not to get drawn aside by the same things that the Jews did then. And that this is a spiritual understanding to be understood spiritually. This is exactly what he did with the woman in Samaria. Turn to chapter 4 of John. You guys know this story well. We spent a lot of time on this. But look at what he did. This is the only time in, in John's gospel where he answers this affirmative that I am the Messiah. But when does he do it? Chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The wisdom of this woman's statement. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He declared himself. But only after he taught her the spiritual reality that God is spirit and you must worship him in spirit and truth. So here's where we find ourselves. They're looking for a Christ. They're looking for a political savior. But the Messiah did not come for those with hard hearts, as we're going to see in just a moment. Jesus answered them. As always, they ask him a question. And he gives them more than they bargained for. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. I told you and you do not believe. We wouldn't get this in the English, but in the Greek, this is a present active tense, which means that it is ongoing. It is a, a continual act. They didn't believe yesterday. They're not believing today. They won't believe tomorrow. You do not believe. You are not believing in me ever. 
And so even though he said the words that I've spoken to you and the works that I've done, my words and my works are declaring who I am. It should be obvious. But you didn't believe. He's been telling us since chapter five about how he is fulfilled what the father he is fulfilling what the father sent him to do, how he will be the judge, how all authority has been given to him. He's been he's been healing. John doesn't even uh, address most of the teaching on uh, on parables and uh, healings and all that. But if you look at everything that's represented in the Gospels, Jesus did plenty. And they're still asking him for further clarification. Isn't that just like human nature? That it can be so clear to us. I need more confirmation. Is that that Gideon moment like, all right, I, I know you've shown me this. Show me again just to make sure. Show me again. And it's amazing how he condescends for his people. For those of hard hearts, he has no patience for. People are stubborn. If you haven't seen it by now, you don't want to. That's where he finds himself. And then he gets into a statement that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and would have made them very uncomfortable. Why did they not believe? Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I've got to spend some time here. I've got, got to break this down because this is bringing together what we've seen the last couple of weeks. And this is important to understand. In one statement, we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man laid right next to each other. First, you do not believe. They are responsible for their unbelief. You do not believe. You are actually hardening your heart. You do not believe. You are responsible for your disbelief. Your wicked heart does not want me to be the Christ. Your wicked heart wants a political king. You have no part of my father's household. You do not believe. But at the same time, you do not believe because the ultimate cause of this is you are not among my sheep. This means exactly what it says here. Remember the um, sheepfold imagery. We talked about how there'd be uh, sometimes multiple flocks of sheep. And they, they may be in the same grazing area. And at night there would be a sheepfold outside of town. And multiple shepherds with multiple flocks would bring their folds in uh, to this sheepfold. And in the morning, when the shepherd would come back after the uh, gatekeeper, the night manager would watch over them. They would call their sheep. And we saw this, that the sheep only pick up their ears for their shepherd. The rest of the sheep heads are down. No distinction. Or excuse me, just just no attention. So the shepherd calls and his sheep, the ones who are not among his flock, stay there. You are not among my sheep, my sheep, my elect. I know them. They hear my voice. You know why? We saw this in chapter 6. Because the Father gave them to me. And he is drawing them to me. My sheep will hear my voice. Again, these, these sermons add on to each other. So I can't recap all of last week. But this is worth repeating. Each message builds on each other, especially when Jesus is talking about one analogy. John puts these together in John 10 so that we get the complete picture here. We talked about the definitive nature of Christ knowing his sheep and how they know him and how he laid down his life for his sheep. And I said this last week, I want to say it again. We, do, we are not sheep because we believe. 
We believe because we are sheep. We are not sheep because we believe. We believe because we're sheep. Our actions do not determine our nature. They prove it. We act out of who we are. And if you are among his sheep, you will respond. You will hear his voice and you will follow him as he will say just in a moment. But if you're not, if you're not among my sheep, you will not believe. Because the father has not drawn you. Because I have not put a new heart within you. So at the same time, God's sovereign election and man's responsibility are upheld. Man is fully responsible for his sin. God is fully responsible for redeeming his people. Well, this messes with people. Well, how do I understand this? How can these things be true at the same time? Let me pose a couple questions for you. If you struggle with this, how can Jesus be God and man at the same time? How can God be three in one at the same time? How can the Holy Spirit write John and yet John write John? How can Jesus raise himself from the grave? If we understood all these things, faith would not be necessary. If we understood all of these things, we would be God and we'd put ourselves in the same predicament that Adam and Eve did. I want to know everything God knows. Don't keep anything from me, God. I want to be your equal. He's God. We're not. So this is difficult to understand. It's just difficult to wrap our minds around. But I'm going to take Jesus over what makes people uncomfortable every day of the week. So we contrast those who do not believe because they're not among the sheep. What about those who do believe? Here's the contrast here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. Now, this is. 27 and 28 are really uh, one thought. So I want to read through it. I want to talk about some things. I want to break this down a little bit. Verse 20, verse 27, my sheep uh, hear, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, this is not chronological. This is this is all true at the same time. This is a complete summary and picture of salvation as Jesus has been teaching us the last couple weeks. And it's also the complete picture of the saving metaphor of the shepherd. So look at this first line here. This relationship that we spent so much time on last week. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. There is a reciprocal nature between shepherd and sheep. There is no such thing as a shepherd who does not know his sheep. There's no such thing as a sheep without a shepherd. They will die. They hear my voice. I know them. Because they hear my voice, they will follow me. These things, these things must go together. He knows the sheep. They hear his voice and they follow. These are all, again, present active tenses. Remember those who didn't believe just a few verses ago? This continual unbelief? This is now continual hearing Continual knowing and continual following. This is a perpetual nature. A, a shepherd who always knows his sheep. A sheep who always listen. They may not always obey the way they should, but they, they know the voice of the shepherd. And they always follow. Even if they don't follow well, 
This is an unbroken picture here. And what does that mean when he says, they hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life? What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That's what real life is. That's what eternal life is. I give them eternal life. Everything here is accomplished by the, by the shepherd. And everything here is for the benefit of the sheep. Isn't that incredible? He calls. He knows them. He gives them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of, their, out of his hand. Do you ever rest in that? Do you ever rest in, this is who my shepherd is. Shepherd who knows me, who's given me ears to hear his voice. Gives me eternal life that I may never perish. And no one will ever snatch me out of his hand. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Again, ongoing actions. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Jesus lays down his life. Last week, he said five times, I laid on my life for the sheep. I laid on my life. I laid on my life so that they would have eternal life. The eternal covenant that we're talking about, this covenant of peace, that is what eternal life is. Security in him. That promise that was promised in Ezekiel, promised in Jeremiah, promised in Isaiah, promised throughout all of the Old Testament that, that those who are the sheep, of the shepherd will never ever perish. Never perish. Well, is there any more confirmation? We saw this last week, but in John 36, or excuse me, chapter 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. How long are we secure? So Christ comes back. And how long after that? Forever. Eternal life, never perishing, never snatched out of his hand. How secure are we? We are in the tightly gripped hands of Jesus. If that doesn't give you security in the Lord, nothing can. Now we've got to address an issue here. I think this is important. And this is dangerous. So I never shy away from... Addressing things that, that concern me. So I have to ask a real question here. How, how good, really, can a shepherd be if he ever loses any of his sheep? Can that shepherd ever be called good? If that shepherd says, I know my sheep, they know me, I give them eternal life, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand, and then some are snatched out of his hand. It's not really a good shepherd. And if he is good, he's not powerful. Because I, I want to address something here. Because there's a picture that many people paint of Jesus. He's a shepherd who opens the door, he lays down his life, and then he sits in a field, Indian style, hoping that these weak, stupid sheep will make their way to him, recognizing what they've done, what he's done for them. He uses this analogy purposely. Sheep can barely feed themselves. There is um, a picture that, that, that's used of cast sheep. Anyone ever heard of this? Show you how helpless sheep are. So um, sheep, if they're not shorn, um, regularly, if you don't take the wool off of them, the wool gets heavy. And if they step on a rock, if they stumble, they will flip over 
No joke. And they will lie on their back with feet straight up in the air and cannot flip themselves over. This is a cast sheep. This is how helpless sheep are. If they're not tended to, they will, they will get themselves caught upside down and will die there. Because their lungs will, will fill with fluid and they will not be able to breathe. So this is a daily concern for shepherds. But this picture is of these discerning sheep who are just deciding you know, which shepherd to follow. Some will come, some will stay and listen for a little while and, and, and leave, and some will outright renounce him. All this weak, powerless shepherd can do is shrug his shoulders and say, well, I gave him free will. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. We never see that. That term is never used biblically. It's a desire to exalt man. Because there's this desire to say, man can choose. Man, the the final say is up to me. I don't want it to be up to anyone else. And it'll let God off the hook. That's not the picture we get in scripture. Because if that shepherd says, I will never let them perish, yet they, they walk away. That is not a good shepherd. He lied. And he's not powerful enough to secure you. And you wouldn't want to be with that shepherd. I don't want a shepherd who I can walk away from because I know I will. My flesh wants to run as fast as I can to things that please me. It's only because of the gospel that I'm reminded of how broken I am and how much I need a shepherd because I'm helpless on my own. Sadly, so many people are committed to this idea of free will and exalting man than they are the lordship and power of Jesus Christ to save and secure his sheep forever. When Jesus says again and again, you will never perish. I will never cast you out. You will never hunger. You will never thirst. No one will snatch you out of my hand. I believe him. And you should too. How do we respond to this? Romans 8. Whenever there's a theological question, go to Romans. So if you're in John, you don't know where Romans is, just go two books to the right. This. These are, you know, a couple of. Christian's favorite bumper sticker verses are are pulled out of here. But I want to get this in context, starting in verse 31. Because every time you doubt or you fear or you think your sin could bring you far away from Christ, the, the, the faith that you had in him yesterday was not enough for tomorrow. What does Paul say to this? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, Romans 8, verse 31. Now I'm in 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen, God's sheep? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. The words are important here. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We love that verse. Keep reading. For I am sure that neither death nor life, if death can't separate you from, your, from Christ, your own sinful desires can't either. Angels nor rulers, those either, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Jesus wants you to know you have security in Christ. Paul wants you to know you have security in Christ and nothing can ever snatch you from his hand. And if we don't believe Jesus, which I advise you should, what does he say? How do we know this to be true? Because my father, my father, who is greater than all, has given them to me. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. We're going to see a couple things here. and I'm going to wrap up. Uh, one, when Jesus says my father, he's speaking as a mediator. He's speaking as our human representative, my father. In just a moment, he's going to say that the father and I are one. So as a human, he's saying my father. And he's contrasting. We saw in chapter eight, God is not their father. Their father is the devil. My father, who's greater than your father, has given them to me. Think about that. He's given them to me. Has entrusted his sheep to me. <laughs> this shows the love of the father for his children. Leaves nothing up to chance. He takes his sheep and he hands them to his son. Entrusted in the most secure hands ever. So that we would be kept and never lost. Safe in his mighty hands. There is no uncertainty in the plans of the Father. Praise Him for that. Praise Him that our sin and our sheep-like nature cannot overthrow His plan for us. There's a picture that um, commentator Kent Hughes uses here. I love this. So um, we've got so many toddlers in here who are just learning how to walk. And I was going to use this illustration and then walking in earlier is my nephew, who's holding the hands of his dad and his, and, his, and his grandmother. And so Kent Hughes talks about this picture with us. Like, you know, toddlers, when they're just learning how to walk, you got to pick them up over every curb. you got to watch out for every obstacle. And he says, so is the same with us. I would not be snatched out of the hand of my Savior and not be snatched out of the hand of my Father in heaven, walking like little toddlers, as safe and secure as they can be in the hands of their parents. We are in the hands of the Father and the son. So Jesus closes here. How do we know? Further confirmation. Can't be snatched out of my hand. Can't be snatched out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. I could spend a whole sermon on the Trinitarian depth of this sentence. I and the father are one. I'm going to try to scratch the surface quickly. This sentence shows the differentiation. But yet the unity. The father is not the son. The son is not the father, but yet they are one. It shows that they are one. This is not two gods or one God with split personalities. These are two distinct persons as the Holy Spirit is a distinct person of one God. But that God is one in essence, one in purpose, in full agreement in everything that he does. The Father and the Son and the Spirit working together. I and the Father are one. This is the mic drop moment for Jesus here. Because if you doubt anything that I said, everything I do is in my Father's authority. We are one. So it's interesting here. Before he said my Father. Now he says the Father. Because he's speaking as the Son and no longer speaking as the Messiah. So eternally, I and the Father, the Father, God himself, 
and I, the Son, God himself, are one. So they asked for a plain answer. Are you the Messiah? He gave them way more than they asked for. Not only am I the human Messiah, but I am Emmanuel, God in the flesh, walking among you. And so all the covenant expectation and all the fulfillment comes together in these two phrases. I and my Father are one. Are you the Messiah? I am everything you thought the Messiah would be and so much more than you can even understand. I am the shepherd of the sheep. I am the sacrificial lamb. I am the savior of the sheep as their human representative. I am the Lord of lords. I am the king of kings. And I am God who confirms it and seals it by the authority that I have had from before the foundation of the earth. There is no greater stamp on this. So just in conclusion, the Lamb of God came to lay down his life for the sheep, walked voluntarily into the temple to make his final declaration publicly. I'm going to see next week they were not very happy with that. He was not come to win any popularity contest. He did not come so that the world would embrace him. He came to lay down his life so that his sheep might live. And that this new covenant of peace would be ushered in for the people of God forever. And they would feel secure in him. If you are in Christ, there is no more secure place. Can I hear an amen? Amen. If you are in Christ, there is no more secure place. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And if you are apart from Christ, you have no security at all. If you are apart from Christ, if you are going to die tomorrow, there's a big question mark for you. This is your only hope. Trust in him. Put your faith and trust in the one who will never let you go. And for believers, some of you walk every day like he can let you go at every moment. Stop that. He will never let you go. You are his because you've been bought with a price that cannot be returned. Blood that was shed that cannot be put back into Christ's body. And know that it is the gospel that frees us, the gospel that secures us, and the gospel that comforts us. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven. How amazing is it. That from all eternity. Jesus. Our Lord and Savior has been calling you father. And through him we get to call you father. We get to bury our sin and our shame in our heads in the rock of ages. That is unshakable, unmovable. You sent your son to be a cure for us. To take on your wrath, which we deserved. And to give us your righteousness, which we should never have. And say, you are mine and you are mine forever. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to us. It would embolden us of whose we are and that we can proclaim the gospel because we are yours. 
It is you who has the power to save. And I pray that you continue to use us to welcome sheep home. We would welcome them into the fold, care for them, and rejoice together like we did with our sister Bree this morning as you are, re- you are bringing people to yourself. You're bringing dead people to life. With the power of the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.